How do we solve the unequal power dynamics, internalized depression, and other challenges that plague the nursing profession and our beleaguered healthcare industry? Let's dive deep with nurse author, speaker, and thought leader Kathleen Bartholomew right here on episode 321 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm still bringing you my pandemic updates at the end of every month. Meanwhile, this podcast continues to be all about you, your personal and professional development, your nursing and healthcare career, and the healthcare system as a whole. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, whether you're new to the show or you've been on this journey with me for months or maybe even years. Thanks for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And remember that Nurse Keith Coaching is your destination for all things related to your nursing career. I offer individualized, holistic career coaching for nurses and healthcare professionals around the world. Email me at keith at nursekeith.com so we can have a chat and you can receive 10% off your first coaching package if you mention the show. The show notes for this episode will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 321. And today we are joined by friend of the pod, Kathleen Bartholomew. Kathleen, it's really great to have you here to talk about this notion of oppression and patriarchy and unequal power dynamics in healthcare and nursing and how we can resolve these issues. And one of the first questions I want to ask you is, could you define what internalized oppression really means? Well, when you internalize oppression, you're not aware of it. And there's several things that we do. You're just so used to being overpowered. And another term that I use is collective learned helplessness. But when you internalize the impression, you just act out and don't realize that you're actually doing it to yourself. Hmm. Doing it to yourself. So how does that manifest in healthcare? And why, why should listeners think about these concepts? They're important to me and they're important to you, but how do we, how do we get people to, to see this in action in their day-to-day work? Well, I think you have to be aware of the power dynamics to begin with. Um, when somebody, for example, physician power dynamics, physician nurse, um, you know, several years ago, especially now there's some more collegial relationships, but there was an unequal power balance. And, and you could see that physicians had more power. Um, we can see on the floor that some nurses have more power than others. We can see that there's informal leaders. But what we don't see is beyond that. Um, we tend to blame the institution, for example, for um, the fact that we have to stick to a grid. And, and that creates a lot of stress. Um, another aspect is the moral distress in nursing. Um, we're told constantly, for example, that uh, we have to care about quality, that we have to treat every patient as if it was our own. And then we say, great, I need another nurse then for the next shift. And they go, oh, no, you, you can't have that. So there's this dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And what do we do with that dichotomy? So, so when we're faced with it, we're faced with that moral distress, for instance, what, where do we turn as if I'm a nurse on the floor and I'm coming up against this, bumping up against this wall over and over again, what do I do? You have to stand in your own power and your own self-esteem 
And that means standing in your own voice. If somebody had asked me, just summarize, you have one sentence to summarize what you learned in 20 years. What's the most important concept? It would be that self-esteem and power and voice, they're all synonyms. They're just synonyms. So every time you self-silence and you don't say what you think, you don't say what you see and what you know, then, then we're letting this oppression take a hold of us. Interesting. So when you're saying saying what you see, is that does that mean that when you witness bullying or lateral violence, for instance, that you call it what it is and you don't just shrink off into the corner? Yes, you call everything what it is. You speak up when you see that smokers get more breaks than non-smokers. You speak up when you see that the staffing is not right for the floor. You speak up to a peer when you walk into the room and it's a third day post-op and yet there's EK cheap ads on the back of the patient. Instead of gossiping to somebody else, you say something to them. So I've done a study over, and I've repeated it with every group that I've spoken to, uh, asking them if I could guarantee you in writing that the conversation would turn out all right. Is there somebody you would speak to at work and have a conversation? with. And what shocked me was that 99% of the audience, no matter if they're chief nursing officers or staff say, oh yeah, if I had that guarantee, I'd have that conversation. Hmm. And then I, and then I rip up the piece of paper and say, well, pretend the person's sitting next to you right now, and you're going to have that conversation anyway. How difficult is the conversation going to be on a pain scale from zero to 10? And 80% of the audience, you know, this is just a show of hands, always says it's an eight, nine, or 10. But the interesting thing, and this is where we see the oppression is, when I say to the audience, I, I don't want to know who you're talking to or what it's about, but just tell me the one thing, the one thought, the one feeling, the one reason why you haven't spoken to this person already. And there's always the same answers. And they're mainly fear, fear of making the situation worse, you know, fear of hurting somebody's feelings, fear of being outed from the group, no time, why bother, nothing's going to change anyway. So you can see the, the oppressed group behavior and the learned helplessness in the fact that we silence ourselves. See, so you mention on page six of your book, The Dauntless Nurse, Communication Confidence Builder, you mentioned uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Friede from 1971. And he asks this question, what happens in groups of people when some people have or perceive more power than others? And you mentioned this notion of oppressed group behaviors, OGBs. And it sounds like to me, and <laughs> probably to many listening, that these oppressed group behaviors manifest at work every day, right? So why are we not taught in nursing school that these things exist and ways in which we can defend ourselves and kind of claim our power when we walk into that unit as a new nurse? Why are we not taught this? That's a great, great question, Keith. Thank you for asking it. Um, we're not taught it because it's historically not part of the curriculum and co teaching culture. And, and here's the important part. You know, like the AACN standards say we have to be as competent in our communication skills as our clinical skills. So how do we measure that competency? How do we measure it in nursing school? How do we measure it in competencies on the floor and education? We don't. We, we don't. So without this knowledge, what, let me tell you what happens. Without the knowledge, when you walk in, when any human being walks into a group, they start mimicking the behaviors of the group. Why? Because the most important thing in the world is to belong. 
Mm-hmm. And they don't understand. And and the and also research shows that when you graduate from nursing school, your self-esteem is comparable to that people who graduate from um, biology, business school, any other place. But once you get into the profession, your self-esteem starts to decrease. And this is why it's because when you walk up and somebody rolls their eyes or raises their eyebrows or sighs, you you don't say you don't address it. You don't say what we could be taught to say, which is, I noticed that. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you rolled your eyes when you handed me the assignment. Did I forget to do something? Mm -hmm. Did you not want to work with a student today? So Martha Griffith, I mean, she did, the co-author of The the Dauntless Nurse and Arna Robbins, but uh, Martha did a study and her two-year retention rate uh, was like in the high 90s for all of her students because she did teach them and they did know about culture and she didn't just teach them the model she had them role play it so that when they walked into these situations they could say i noticed that you rolled your eyes if there's something you want to say to me you can speak to me directly that's pretty direct <laughs> right and but their fear holds us back doesn't it because one we want to fit in one we two we don't want to make waves three we don't want to alienate ourselves from from others or others from us but we're already alienated anyway, right? Because that nurse is rolling her eyes at us. That other nurse did turn his back on us. So it's already happening. So we might as well come out and just say it, shouldn't we? Yes. And and we should also understand that it's not intentional and nobody means harm because I've never met a nurse in my life in all of the traveling that I've done who's ever thought to or said to herself, oh, I think I'm going to roll my eyes now. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to raise my eyebrows. I think I'm going to sigh. These are, we have to understand, these are unconscious learned habits, just like we learned them in middle school and we perfected them in high school. Hmm. And, you know, this behavior is not just limited to the floor. I mean, it's in the entire profession. We disagree over the entry level for college and the definition of a registered nurse. We have diverse curriculum that varies per institution, per location. The scope and definition differs by state, you know, different. Uh, so, so there's lots of ways that this oppression plays out. And I think it's important to summarize for the audience what that theory is. And it's really simple. Whenever there are two groups and one has more power, the dominant group exerts so much power downward that the oppressed group can't direct their power upward so they unconsciously lash at each other. But what interests me is, how do you get out of it? How do you stop it? And that's what your question was alluding to. And, and the answer from Paula Freire is, is you raise your self-esteem individually and collectively. Mm-hmm. And you raise the veil. You show you show the audience. Um, I love the the wow in the audience when they look at my PowerPoint and they see all their reasons that they've just told me are already up on the screen because everybody has the same reasons. We are in fear. So what would it look like if nursing was not in fear? What would it look like exactly? And you know what? Just today, actually, I was speaking to a nurse in Canada who has been bullied terribly, and a lot of her colleagues have been bullied too. And you know what she did? She did what my what my friend Renee Thompson has recommended. She started documenting every single incident, and she got her colleagues to start documenting every single incident. Who was there? Who witnessed it? What happened? What was said? What was done? And then they actually put it all together and actually took this to the union and took it to administration and said, look, here are the nine people who we see exhibiting bullying behaviors and intimidation, and we want something done about it. And 
there's been all hell to pay and people aren't talking to her, but she feels like she needed to set an example for the nurses who haven't been there as long and are less experienced than her. And she decided she was going to go for it and do exactly what you're saying. And that takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? It does. And what we call that person is a leader. And once when I was speaking, a chief nursing officer, uh, she demonstrated leadership as well by standing up after the presentation and I've tolerated all this before. You know, how am I supposed to suddenly, you know, start saying something about these behaviors? Mm-hmm. And my answer was, you say that. You simply say it. You say, I tolerated the behaviors before because I didn't know how damaging they were to our self-esteem individually and as a group. But what I want to point out, Keith, is, I mean, this is where I started. I mean, I started with physician-nurse behavior behavior because you can see the power when somebody has power over you. It took me a while to see the, the nurse-to-nurse hostility. I was actually at a conference and asked if any nurses had story and was blown away by the 30 stories I collected. And after I heard them, I, I, I just quit my job. I had to figure out, you know, how in the most, in the profession where it's known for caring, can nurses possibly be so mean to each other? And so I feel like my whole life has been a camera and I just keep taking that further and further and further. And um, so I'm at a point where I'm like, wow, I mean, this isn't just about nursing. This is about power. And this is about us taking our rightful place in society and and answering those difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And in your original book, Speak Your Truth, Proven Strategies for Effective Nurse-Physician Communication, this was based on your master's thesis, correct? Yes, it is. It is my master's thesis. It is actually. your master's thesis. Um, <laughs> see, folks, yeah. if you write a master's thesis, you can publish it. And you were quoting the research of Kramer and um, Schmallenberg around the five categories to define types of relationships. And this could relate to nurse to nurse or nurse to physician. And the first one they mentioned was collegial, which is equal power, trust, and respect. And that's what we're always going for, right? Is that what we want? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I mean, some of us, some of your listeners probably may work in environments like that. And and like everything, there's a bell curve, right? And some of it is worse, but the majority of the bell is we're not equal. Like, how would you know you were equal to somebody? You would never hold back saying what you thought. You would say, hey, doctor, I, I, I don't understand why you changed, you know, the drug or ordered this test. Mm-hmm. You would, you know, you would speak up. So, you know, if somebody's a colleague, you go for a cup of coffee. We think we have collegial relationships with physicians, but there's a line and you know not to step over it. I see. Now, the second form of relationship or category that Kramer and Schmallenberg identified was collaborative, which is mutual power, trust, and respect, not equal, but mutual. Now, what's the difference here? I think that... Um, in, in collegial, like you said, there is no doctor-nurse label. You, you actually are providers. You're, you're on a team and you're together. You just have different roles, but you're all very equal. You feel like you have equal value and worth. When you get to collaborative, you're aware that the physician, that type of relationship is the physician has a little bit more power, but you work in mutual respect you, you, with each other. 
Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. And I've been in both those types of relationships and they're both pretty comfortable. I mean, they both feel pretty good because I feel heard, I feel seen, I feel acknowledged. And both of those have worked for me pretty well. And the third category they mention is teacher-student, right? And this can work in many different ways. And I think we've all experienced this too. That can be, you know, a mentor or an actually a, a, a nurse who you're precepting with, for instance, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a, you know, it's funny how residents will come to the floor and they count so much on the nurses and lots, lots of times residents will stay at the same hospital and they remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they remember, they remember that uh, symbiotic teaching and but we have a lot to teach physicians too um unfortunately the education for physicians is basically to diagnose and prescribe diagnose and treat and nurses have a totally different educational you know we're taught differently we're taught more holistic Mm -hmm. we're taught to pay attention to all the social and economic factors etc exactly right and then in the fourth category it's the friendly stranger where there's little trust and acknowledgement it's courteous but formal. And this might be where perhaps you're encountering, I don't know, the urology uh, consultant who's come into the floor and it's a very exactly. stiff and formal conversation, but you feel pretty heard and you're hearing them and just, there's just not a whole lot of, there's not a lot of warmth there, right? It's a very formal. You don't have a relationship. You're just working together. Yeah, you're just working together. And and those can turn hostile. They, those can turn more collegial over time. It all depends, right? Absolutely. It depends on what? It depends on your response to what happens. I mean, once a doctor was basically, I watched as the nurses would call in and report a fever and the post-op woulder said, we call for a fever over 102. And he would just slam the phone down on each and every one of them. And I waited mm-hmm. till he spoke to me and I literally, how I decided to respond was non-verbally and he was six foot four. So I pulled a chair over when he asked me to come over and stood on the chair and looked down at him rather than him looking down at me. Oh, good for you. Oh my God. That's awesome. Well, there's just little, <laughs> there's just little things like that. I mean, basically it's like you, how can you stay in your power? Mm-hmm. But we get used to it. We just, we get used to the roles and and it also varies depending on whether you're in an ICU or a med surge floor or an ED. I mean, ER is totally different culture. What we're talking about here is, you know, is the different cultures. And so physician-nurse relationships are, are different. And if you're a float nurse or, and you float or a traveler and you go to different floors in the hospital, it takes you five minutes to figure out, <laughs> you know, what the relationships are like on mm-hmm. that floor. Right. Your antenna are going, you know, they're, they're, they're going crazy because you can tell immediately what's going on. Absolutely. Right? Your, your nurse spidey sense is, you know, pretty sharply honed and you can tell. Can you imagine if we trained together, if we learned together, if the first two years of our education was together? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, that would make incredible levels of respect and mutual learning and collaboration and seeing the struggles and the, the successes of each other group. Right. Yes, I, I can think of the physicians. I mean, uh, I'm sure every listener can, you know, think of that one relationship uh, with a physician where there was just so much synergy, so much trust, you know. And who benefits from that the most? It's the patient every single mm-hmm. time. I think that's the illusion around physician nurse relationships. Is that, you know, Jayco didn't start really until about 2010, and that's when I started talking about this. Is is you know highlighting the fact that. These are about safety. I mean, your your relationship with the physician determines how safe your patients are. 
Because if you can't speak up and if you can't say anything, that's why these are so important. And the same thing goes, I mean, with with your peers. We have to speak up the the drama on the floor. There's no place for that in, in healthcare. Absolutely not. And that drama can come out in that fifth category of relationship, which is hostile. And I think anyone listening right now who's worked in healthcare more than five minutes <laughs> can probably quickly identify a hostile relationship, can't they? Yes. And, and sometimes the most hostile relationships are the ones that are absolutely silent and you don't talk to somebody, but you know the second they come on the floor. Mm-hmm. Right. And speaking of that, speaking of that hostility and that adversarial quality that we can we can feel it sometimes when we walk onto a unit, right? So in your book, The Dauntless Nurse, you talk about inherited codes of nursing behavior. And you talk about how we pass DNA from generation to generation biologically, but we we pass means from generation to generation of nurse. And these are basically, you call them cultural codes of behavior. So what are some cultural means that get passed in the quote-unquote DNA of nurses from generation to generation? Oh, that's a great question. Um, One of them is, my instructor was hard on me, so I'm going to be hard on you. I'll make you a good nurse. Uh, another meme that gets passed through the generation is um, I, I got a phone call actually from a hospital where the nurse, an ICU nurse, uh, was noticing that her peer was on her cell phone constantly and said something to her and, and she ignored her. And 10 minutes later, the family was saying, where is the nurse? And she went back and she's on her self, personal cell phone again with personal messages. And, and she finally went to the manager to report it because she, like, a professional nurse, if you have a problem with somebody, you're going to go talk to that person first. You're going to really try three times at least to to solve it with your peer. But because safety and quality were at risk, she said to the manager, hey, I, uh, you know, this is what's happening. And you know what the manager's response was, was, quote, well, leave her alone. She's a good nurse. Mm-hmm. So our definition of what a good nurse is, is another cultural meme. Um, we don't, treat students as if they're equal. I mean, uh, the number one, the reason that book was written is so important. Um, I, I put an ad in, in the Student Nurses Association bulletin and said, tell me stories from your clinicals. And I received about 80 stories and, and they just made me cry. And the reason I wrote that book is because I love this profession. I really do. And I thought to myself, we're not going to, we're not going to have any new students, if we keep running them out like this, humiliating them and, and having them go through this hazing mm-hmm. in order to belong, exactly. in order to belong. So, th- so that's just a few. I mean, we need to, we need to protect them. I mean, you should have seen the faces of the, I can still remember the last shift I worked when I had a few student nurses and they said, we're done. Goodbye. And I said, oh no, we're not done. Uh, I said, I, I need your feedback. How did I do today as your nurse? And what could I do better tomorrow? I thought they were going to choke. Right. <laughs> I mean, they were just done. They were just dumbfounded. What if every nurse said that? How did I do today as your mentor? Is there anything I can do tomorrow better? Mm. They're like, what nursing planet did this person come from? Right. So these are all memes, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. And on page seven, you say something about how the cultural meme for nursing instructors was and has been to be tough because they understood that women in a patriarchal society 
especially in a new profession working with vulnerable people, need to be extremely strong. And however, nursing faculty couldn't separate the role of woman and the role of nurse and brought that that subjugation of women by patriarchal oppressors into the profession, right? So how does that manifest in, and are, are nursing instructors still doing that to this day? Our nursing instructors are so overwhelmed of the mm-hmm. information that I have. <laughs> I mean, I know personally of nurses who, instructors who have worked, they're the most oppressed group of all, actually. So, um, I mean, when I graduate with my master's degree, I was at, offered a tenure track position and as a faculty member, or I could go back to a nursing job for twice the salary. So, I mean, I, I feel that nursing faculty are very dedicated and incredibly oppressed and work very hard. And yes, it's present because they are so, so mm-hmm. oppressed. Mm-hmm. And when I was a student back in the mid nineties, I had several professors who were older, granted, this was the mid nineties. They were probably in their 60s or one was probably in her 70s at the time. And they definitely practiced this very old school type of nursing education. They were harsh. I mean, they were they were kind of like, I guess you would call them like battle axes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes, and, I do. <laughs> and that was that was hard. I mean, they were they brought people to tears. And you know, sometimes crying in the middle of clinical is not such a bad thing. You know, you've, you've learned something, you've had a tough road to hoe. And, but to be, to be not intimidated, but to be humiliated in front of your peers and sometimes in front of your patient, that's not necessarily a good way to learn, is it? Absolutely not. I mean, there's nothing equal about that. And yes, you're absolutely right in describing how it started and why it started. And you can tell it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, your, the rationale was was not uh, negative. It was to encourage and to preserve and to make sure that we were professionals and, and that we were respected by society and the physicians that we worked with. You know, so that's how the story began. My question is, how's the story going to end? Like, where do you want that story to go now? Exactly. And when we come back from our break, and you and I could talk for hours, obviously, but when we come back from a break, I want to talk about your care plan and your diagnosis for the profession and what we could actually do with that care plan, which sounds like it could be another master's thesis or a PhD dissertation, and how we can actually band together and come up with solutions. Because I think as a profession, we're looking for solutions. And you're offering some, and I really want to pick your brain here in the second half and dive deep into that. How does that sound? Looking forward, Keith. Can't wait. Great. So don't go away. We'll be right back for the second half of episode 321 of The Nurse Keith Show. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other awesome listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support The Nurse Keith Show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Nurse Keith. 
And if you know someone who could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit, so you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. And remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits. What an incredible deal. And please head over to nursekeith.com and sign up for my newsletter, which comes out regularly and brings you supportive messages, updates from my blog and my podcast, resources, and all sorts of other stuff. Remember, nursekeith.com, sign up for that newsletter, and you'll also get a free download from me as my gift to you. Anyway, those are my sincere asks today. So now, Let's dig back into today's topic without further ado. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes where you can learn all about Kathleen Bartholomew and her work and her talks and so much more will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 321. Now, gosh, Kathleen, before the break, we were talking about Ooh, the pedagogy of the oppressed. And we were talking about the memes that are passed from generation to generation of nurses like DNA and the ways in which hmm, power can be misused in unequal relationships between physicians and nurses, from nurse to nurse, et cetera. So you have come up with a care plan and a diagnosis for the nursing profession. And the first question I want to ask before we get into it is, why did you feel that the profession actually needed a care plan and then a diagnosis? Great question. So at the end of every year, I have a hobby, and I I take all the information that I've collected um, during the year about the health of America, uh, about the health of the people, our patients. And, and I put that all together and I looked at it this year and I was just dumbfounded. I mean, just a few examples of, you know, we so focused on COVID, we had to. I mean, that's where all of the attention and the energy is going. But, you know, when I, I looked at everything that was not COVID, you know, there was a movie a long time ago called While You Were Sleeping. And, and so basically, mm-hmm. this is like while you were quarantining, what happened, right? So while you were quarantining, uh, the health of America is declining even more in many areas. I mean, from a poisoned and insufficient food supply. And, and I wonder, I'll give you one example, and that is just on baby food. I mean, this, this was like eight seconds on the radio the other day um, of 168 baby food jars, 94% contained lead, you know, a 94%? quarter. 94%? Yes. And 25% contained harmful levels of arsenic, lead, cadmium, and, and mercury. And so this Ooh. warranted what? Eight, nine seconds on the, on the television. So then, then there's another bullet and another bullet and another bullet. And the average human being, we can't ab- absorb the big picture. So I wrote all this stuff down and I looked at it and I thought, wow, I mean, do you know that there were 45 million complaints by technology companies to the Center for Exploited Children, the National Center, uh, last year? And, and that is double what it was the year before. 45 mm. million complaints. And, and so, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on. I'm thinking, okay, well, where is nursing? The health of Americans is declining. We've now got, what, 46, 47% of Americans, that's half, that suffer from the top chronic diseases. 
You know, we've got mm-hmm. 34 million with diabetes. So we're not, we're, these trends are not good for the first time in the history of our country. Our, our lifespan is decreasing. That's never happened in an industrialized country before. So I thought, you know, why, why haven't, you know, 4 million nurses made a difference? And um, what can we do? So I, I realized that the, the biggest failure is that we failed to mobilize. The, and I was talking to um, kindly, Jean Watson uh, gave me some of her time. And she said, you know, a, a better way to say that might be a failure to actualize nursing's potential. Because if we realized nursing's potential as the caring healing profession that it was, then we could reverse this downward spiral in American health. But we're, Right. Yeah, we're very hospital centric, though. We are. That's true. And only about half of nurses work in hospitals anyway, right? Something like that. So there's plenty of other nursing happening out in the world that's not happening in a hospital. But you're just before we get into the care plan and your diagnosis, we just heard uh, Jean Watson's diagnosis, which is very kind for her to drop into the show. You know, you've worked in marketing, business, communications, you've been a teacher, you've spoken at, you've spoken all over the country, haven't you? And you've been on NPR, on the People's Pharmacy, you've been an op-ed writer for the Seattle Times, and you have also worked as a manager of a 57-bed orthopedic and spine unit, and you wrote Ending Nurse-to-Nurse Hostility in 2006. So what I'm trying to paint a picture of here is that you've been around the block. You've been around the nursing profession and healthcare and medicine for quite some time. And you're bringing a great deal to bear when you're looking at this data that you said you collect. Is it at the end of every year, you said? Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're considered a healthcare culture expert. And you speak to hospital boards and the military and senior leadership and people in power, and you've spoken all over the world. So what is your care plan telling us? And can you share what the diagnosis is based on everything you bring to the table from these years and years of experience observing and being in the thick of it? Um, yes. <laughs> um, I think that's, it, you know, it's very interesting. First of all, I didn't come into nursing until I was 40. So that was a big blessing. I was 39 when I came into nursing. But the other thing is, is that um, to speak to every level, to speak to a frontline nurse and then give a board retreat for a hospital or or to the state board of nursing in a state, you know, gives me this really wide lens and this wide perspective. So my mm. diagnosis is a failure to mobilize and um or as Jean says, a failure to actualize, Ben. And the symptoms that I see, here's my assessment, are, are three, main, three, main, three main symptoms. You know, the first one is we've already discussed, oppressed group behavior. And we've talked about that earlier. Uh, the second one is collective learned helplessness. We, once you ask for help again and again and again, you just don't ask anymore. And I can give you a few examples of that. And the third one is uh, a lack of knowledge. We don't have a even a common language, for example, to define the role of the nurse. If you ask a thousand nurses to define nursing, you'll get a different answer. And, and the a and you know, the a formal definition is, I think, 45 words long. So the public doesn't know what we do. If we can't articulate what we do, then we can't articulate that to the general public. And as we mentioned before, we have a lack, you 
kindly mentioned the if you don't know about the culture that you're walking to if you don't have the communication skills you know we're missing that mm-hmm. set so these three things result in our failure to mobilize and you had said failure to organize when i was talking to you before and boy does that word scare people mm. because as soon as you use the word organize that's what you know people think unionize exactly. and they 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 think they're the same thing but they're not and what are there a hundred nursing organizations and um one day I was in Washington, D.C. for an entire week showcasing the American Journal of Nurses um, photo exhibit. And it happened to be when the march was for pro-life. And I looked out and there were seas of people just, oh, I, I'd never seen undulating waves of heads before going on for miles. There were, I don't know, 25,000 people there. And I thought to myself, nursing will never come in one force to the Capitol We ever done that you know these people came on 500 buses and and we just our buses are going in different directions to different organizations and and we we've got to come together with one voice and decide who we are what and tell tell the world what we can do and if we're if our buses are going in different directions which tells me that the voice and the body of nursing is splintered. And in the first half of the show, I think right towards the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned how we can't even define what nursing is. We we can't all agree on what the entry level should be or when someone should get into a master's degree program, et cetera, et cetera. So, and we all have our opinions about such things. How do we actually make this happen. So you've, you've brought about your diagnosis and your assessment, but then what's our plan? Like, what do we, how do we actually bring the profession together and actually come to a place where we can agree on definitions and purpose, et cetera? Well, I'm actually working with a, a group uh, transforming healthcare now with a group of nurses. I'm, we're just coming together and doing it. We're saying the way things are, raising the level of awareness and saying what, what, what can be. And, and we see, you know, I easily see nurse practitioner led clinics all over the country and a public utility model. I mean, we've allowed healthcare to be politicized. You know, what is wrong? I mean, you, we didn't get into it before, but the most oppressive thing of, of all is that the values, when you have a for-profit model, when, when the hospital has to have sick people to keep its doors open and make money, that's backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's creating the moral distrust in the profession because it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. A hospital, you know, these leaders must focus on money to keep the doors open. So the number one goal is money. And yet that doesn't, fit well with nurses where the number one goal is the care that, you know, I see that you need and that I want to give you. Of course, we've been robbed of our time more than we've been robbed of anything else. And Florence Nightingale said that was the greatest gift that a nurse has. And that just keeps getting incrementally smaller and smaller by the day. And what would she say if she walked onto a busy hospital unit right now? I think she'd get to work. Um, but she would. She probably would. <laughs> That's the first thing she would do. But Florence always spoke her truth. And when somebody told her no, that she couldn't do it, I, I'm sure you know the story of when she said, look, if we treat the sickest people first, when she reported to the general, then we'll save more lives. And he said, no, you know, you're treating the generals first. And so she cut all the patches off of 
all the uniforms and gave them to the nurses and said, you decide who's the general, basically. And, you know, what happened, the, mortal, the mortality plummeted. I, I loved it when I heard that story. Wow. So, I mean, she did it so that she, she actually spoke her truth. But I want to make sure that everybody knows that it's not joining an organization. When you say, when you say come together, it's not so much about joining an organization mm -hmm. as it is of joining a philosophy and standing in your power, which you can do uh, no matter where you are. If you're in, in public health, if you're in school health, if you're in administration, if you're trying desperately to get funding, no matter if, or education, no matter where you are, if you, if you say what you see, if, if you say things, you know, always say what you see. And, uh, you know, the oppressed group behavior is almost like a school of fish. You know, like we, we try to stay together. And, you know, another aside is that, you know, it's so funny when I'll say to a group of nurses, especially in healthcare, you know, if you're in a meeting and your boss proposes something and you don't like the idea and you think it's a bad idea and you go to say something, then everybody looks at you like, and the audience always knows the answer. They just blurt out loud, you're not a team player. So there's this there's this meme we we talked about memes in healthcare mm -hmm. that you know if you're if you're a good team player then you're going to agree with what everybody else says. So that's not true. We have to break that meme. If you're good, you say what you see because we need each and every one of you. We need our educators to be funded. We need our researchers. We need people in every area, people like you Keith who have got the show and are getting you know, word out there of, of the things that people are doing and nurses are doing and, and the important issues and what it's like every day. I, I don't think I could go back to nursing. It's been 10 years since I've been at the bedside. And I, I really, I, I couldn't spend 40% of my time charting. It would kill me not to spend time with the patient. We hear this from nurses all the time. Even nursing students talk about it. You know, I, I speak with nursing students and brand new nurses all the time and they, they, I often hear from these younger novice nurses, like, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't, I didn't go to school to learn how to chart, you know, and, and I know charting is important, but I came to actually, you know, serve people. And we need to understand how, yeah, there are things we need to fulfill, right? We need to chart, we need to write down the INO, we need to, to chart the blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. But so many nurses seem to feel that the art is gone. They can't, they can't do what they came to do. And I, I hear such, such demoralized voices out there. And it's, it's, so, uh, it's so maddening to hear newer nurses feeling like they already can't do what they came to do. Right. And we could talk for a very long time about all these issues, but since I have not a lot of time with you, let's get down to the essence. Let's do a root cause analysis of all of these things right now. So Donna Bedian said structure dictates process, which dictates outcomes. You and I are talking about these outcomes of not having enough time with our patients, of being demoralized. And what people focus on is changing the process. And what is wrong is the structure. So I mm -hmm. would like to say to you that never in the current structure, will we be able to actualize our potential? We must create a different structure. And that's why I'm advocating so strongly with other nurses for a public utility model where everyone has the right to healthcare. And there are not certain people who make money on you getting sick and on drugs and being hospitalized. That shouldn't be profitable. You know, mm -hmm. let's just think of a fire station. Right. Did you know that some people used to pay for fire insurance and others didn't? And if you didn't pay your fire insurance, your your house would burn down. 
And then people no, realize, wait, well, they, wait a minute, this is important. Well, let's look at the pandemic. Some with COVID and not having COVID and water and sewer. What if you had sewer and your neighbor didn't have a sewer? Well, you know, this is with the pandemic, we can see that health matters too. I mean, who mm. is this hitting the hardest? People who have these chronic diseases and the, and the elderly. And our population's immune systems are shot because our health of our nation is terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And on a fairly recent episode with the folks who from the Public Health Foundation, they talked about this. This I just came to mind when you mentioned a fire station. This this metaphor of what if you had a fire station in your neighborhood and it was decrepit and abandoned and there was grass growing in the concrete and there were no fire trucks left and when you had a fire no one would come because there was nothing there and that's because it was funded by by profit and they realized it wasn't a profitable place to have a fire station so the fire station just kind of went decrepit so in that particular sense this is very similar when you're saying that if we don't have a fire station, so to speak, for each and every citizen, for each and every illness and each population, then we're leaving people out to dry to get sick. And then that system is fed by those who get sick because they make a profit off them, right? Oh, yes. Yes. So where does that cycle stop then? You're saying a public utility model, which comes down to single payer healthcare. Is that what you mean when you say public utility? Oh, that's that's a good question. So it's an adapted public utility model, but basically, you the utility companies are not allowed to raise their prices for water and electricity and make a ton and ton of money on that. They it's capped, it's controlled, right? Ah, uh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and so healthcare. So like it should be water, sewer, power, healthcare, and and mm -hmm. everybody has a right to healthcare. So I think you know in our country there is a meme in our general society that says, oh, no, some people don't deserve, you know, health care. But I don't know a nurse who feels that way. I mean, when mm -hmm. people and our patients come in, we don't say to one, oh, that person doesn't deserve care. I mean, that's why we came into nursing, because we we care for all of humanity. So in the public health mo model, basically, it has public accountability. And there and people can't make money and and be rich off of disease and illness. I mean, let's just look at a couple of things. You know that what does it cost to epinephrine costs what fifty three cents to make and and they charge seven hundred and fifty dollars for it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, one in four Americans right now are rationing insulin. Look at the impact of the opioid epidemic. Look at look at how many people are reaping have luxury yachts because of healthcare. So when a nurse is on the floor and we can't get that extra nurse for the next shift, we get angry, mm -hmm. and that's where the nurse to nurse hostility or the nurse to nurse aggression comes out. We're powerless. We feel powerless, and we take out the fact that we don't have power on each other. But the real you know, we have to come together and be kind and nurturing and supportive to each other because what who's really oppressing us is is the is we just walk away, you know, walk away from that right. and say not doing it anymore. Right. And and so we have this diagnosis of failure to mobilize, and we have this idea or plan of okay, we all need to become more active, we need to change 
the systems that cause us to be oppressed and cause Americans who are sick to be profited off of by those who are making lots of money and not necessarily helping us to provide the best care because then they tell us we can't have enough nurses to provide that care. So as individuals, what do we actually need to do? Like, how can we actually implement this care plan? What actions do we do we actually take on a day-to-day or month-to-month or year-to-year basis? I think, I think this depends on where you're working in the system. There's such a variety to nurses, but I can say and it is that it is not minimal to, to understand that every day our responses to what happens around us contributes to the bigger story. And that mm-hmm. one by one, as nurses speak their truth, stay in their power, um, I, I heard that, for example, the nurses in Somalia, was it, uh, said, we're not working without the N95 masks, period. So they didn't have, you know, the, the deaths that we did, whereas we worked without the equipment that we needed. Once again, you know, another example of, of being overpowered. So how do we reclaim that power? We have to reclaim it individually before we can reclaim it collectively. So always speak your truth. Always say what you see. Speak out about the issues that are important to you on your unit, uh, in your organization, where you are. The example that you gave earlier, Keith, of, about the nurse who who just could not take the culture of uh, oppression and bullying and spoke up and, and just wrote everything down. I mean, so and, and understand that nothing's really going to change in a for-profit model where the most important thing is money. We have mm-hmm. to advocate for a structure. And can we advocate for this together? Does not everybody, is there a nurse out there who doesn't, who, who believes that people do not deserve health care? Because as a nation, our economy is suffering and will suffer. We're spending what? 20, almost 19% of the whole GDP on healthcare. And what does mm-hmm. that healthcare get us? Terrible outcomes, and we're continuing to decline. In general, people think that the health of Americans is better than it, than it actually is. There, yes, we're improving in some areas, but there's going to be a wave of mental health issues as people are losing their jobs, you know, lost their lives, their houses, their, their businesses, the, the impact, their loved ones their support, I mean, alienation, uh, the mental health is going to be a really big thing in the future. And, and we need to advocate for that as well. There's tons of things that people can do. But if you mean like join an organization, no. Get on the bandwidth that, you know, we, we have to change the structure. The structure is not mm-hmm. going to do it. There, the rest is just changing processes, you know, but we need a structure that can allow us to work to our full capacity. Imagine Imagine that we keep people out of the hospital. Like I'll give you an example, Billy Allred and uh, her team at Vermont Medical Center up in in Vermont. They listened and, you know, I spoke there and boy, their team just ran with it. And and in 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, 80% of their patient revenue came from inpatients. And today only 20% comes from inpatient care. Their goal is keeping people out of the hospital, not keeping people in the hospital. It's all wired backward. Are you familiar with the concept of upstreaming? Uh, No. Tell us what that is. I'll tell you a story because it, it, uh, it illustrates it better. But one day a nurse was walking in the forest by a river and she heard somebody screaming. And so she ran over to the river and saw that somebody needed help. And she pulled them out and, you know, took off her sweatshirt and bandaged them up. And then another person came down the river and another and another. And she called for her friends and they kept pulling these 
broken, damaged people out of the river. Then the nurses called for the physicians because, boy, you know, people were really a mess and it just never seemed to stop. And days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into decades as the nurses and doctors kept pulling people out of the river and fixing them. And one day, like a swarm of swallows, all the nurses stood up and left. (laughs) The doctor called out, where are you going? You can't leave us. And the very last nurse turned around and said, we're going to go see who's throwing these people down the river. Mm, Good one, Kathleen. This is my major point. It's time. It's time to band together and to say, who's throwing these people down the river? Mm -hmm. And whether that means writing a letter to the editor, running for school board, running for mayor, maybe being one of those few nurses in Congress, whatever that looks like, those are the parts we can play, right? Yes, making a phone call that is a minute long to your every single solitary week. You know, it's interesting because when I go to speak to organizations of nurse leaders in a state, when I walk in, the first ask, the first five people I see is how many nurses are in their state? How many nurses are in your state? And nobody's been able to answer it yet. Oh, they'll mm-hmm. find out. They can easily find out, but nobody knows. Do you know why? They don't need to. Why would they need to know that there's 43,000 nurses, for example, in you know, Minnesota, let's say, you know, because, you know, there, there's, there's 30 or 40,000 of you in a state, you know, so, so call. It makes a mm-hmm. difference if you call. It makes a difference if you write. Have I called my senator in the last week? Yes. <laughs> Have I gone to the Hill and gone? You know, yes, I've done everything I can. And, and maybe people can't do that. But a phone call, a text, an email saying, look, this isn't right. It's not right mm-hmm. that my kid has, you know, that my neighbor has to ration her insulin. Exactly. Right. So thank you. This is all, this is so instructive and inspiring. And I really recommend people read The Dauntless Nurse because there's quite a bit of um, of great practical advice in The Dauntless Nurse and a lot of inspiration. And it sounds like that people can also connect with you online and find more of your work. And you have a TEDx talk people can watch, right? Yes, I do. And then um, you also um, you can go to Nurses Transforming Healthcare uh, to join the nurses who are are really living the <laughs> values and the, the dream. They're really imagining what is possible. Mm, that's wonderful. And we'll have a link to KathleenBartholomew.com in the show notes. And I want to have that uh, TED, TEDx talk embedded. I think it's from... Um, it's from Washington State, I believe, where you reside. Yes, mm-hmm. San Juan Island. It was San Juan Island. Yeah. So we'll have that embedded in the show notes so people can watch it. And is there any other ways people can get in touch with you? Sure, you can send me an email. I would, I'd love to hear from you, Kathleen Bart at msn.com. Great, we'll have that in the show notes too. And Kathleen, this has really been wonderful. And you're part of a great group of of nurses and healthcare providers who are looking at how to transform healthcare. And I'm gonna be having many members of that group on the show in the months to come. So it's really been an honor to have you here and you're you're a bright light out there. And thank you for doing all this great work and, and sharing your insights with us today. Oh, and thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show here with friend of the pod, Kathleen Bartholomew. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 321. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered, and I hope you will take some of Kathleen's ideas and admonishments here and put some of her notions into action 
in your personal and professional lives. And The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts and media entities dedicated to professional education and partnering to improve social ills. Find them at Ars Longa Media, that's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com, one of the largest and fastest growing collections of authoritative, high quality podcasts out there, taking on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappy Speeson is our stalwart social media ringmaster. I'm grateful to Rob and Mark for keeping the wheels turning in the right direction. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from very, very chilly Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my friend Kathleen Bartholomew bidding you adieu from Bellingham. Bellingham, Washington. Thank you so much, Kathleen. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you on the flip side.